This is Archive Atlanta, episode 41, Rich's Department Store. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week, I'm tackling the famed downtown department store, Riches. Not gonna lie, it had me a little nervous, in the same way that Decatur makes me nervous, because attachment, nostalgia, and love for Riches' store runs deep. And I have seen Atlantans wax poetic about it. And it's just not something that I've experienced firsthand. I do have my own memories of department stores from my childhood. Christmas displays on Fifth Avenue, New York City. Getting to go inside FAO Schwartz Toy Store. Mostly those, the random shops on Junction Boulevard in Queens where my mom lied and told me that you couldn't go in the stores unless you bought something. I'm not kidding. I believe that until I was probably 14. That's probably an entire other episode of Lies Your Parents Told You When You Were a Kid. But I would bet that every city or town in America has its own story with its own store. With that spirit in mind, I'm going to do my best to give this topic justice. Thankfully, I have an entire amazing book written by my friend Jeff Clemens. I've mentioned him before in the Westview Cemetery episode, but he has also written a book about riches along with his Westview book. Um, And I'm going to give you guys a very high-level early riches history. But if you want to know everything, and I mean everything, about riches – You should buy this book, and I will have a link in the show notes to make that possible. First, I'd like to start with some general department store history and how and when this trend appeared in the United States. The first department store was opened in New York City in 1825, and it started as a small dry goods store. And by dry goods, I'll I'll say that a lot today, and it just means pretty much everything. So everything but the kitchen sink. Um, And that morphed into a larger building, which would then be called the Marble House. During the Civil War, it was the Marble House that would be the first store to issue bills of credit on a monthly basis as opposed to the customary twice a year. In 1846, a man named Alexander Stewart opens the Marble Palace, no doubt jumping on that association with the other store, and he would be the first to pioneer one-price policy, simple returns, waiting rooms, and free delivery. The famous Macy's was founded in 1858 by Roland Macy as a dry goods store as well. And then in cities like Pennsylvania, you had a place called uh, Wanamaker's, which opened in 1877. And then in Chicago, you have the famous Marshall Field, which opens in 1852. But let's go back to Atlanta and riches. But first, it makes sense to start with the two brothers who started it all. Mauritius and William Rich. Now, they that was not how they spelled their last name. So they spelled it R-E-I-C-H. And I'm sure it has a different pronunciation, but I did not want to get it wrong. They were born in Hungary, two of seven children. And in 1859, they're given money to get them over to the United States and establish with the Black family of Cleveland, Ohio. The Blacks were a Jewish family that had known the riches back in Hungary. And so the brothers left on the stagecoach to Vienna, and they eventually completed their trip, arriving in Cleveland shortly thereafter. One of the first steps for so many immigrants coming to the United States was to anglicize their surname. R-E-I-C-H became R-I-C-H. Their first jobs were in retail, and then after saving a little money, the brothers moved together into a boarding house, and they attended night classes to learn how to read, write, and speak English. Morris Rich, as he was called, went on to become a door-to-door salesman and then eventually a traveling salesman, so he would sell goods from his horse carriage. William Rich became a salesman in Chicago. Now, because they were not American citizens, the brothers avoided being forced to fight in the Civil War. 
But like all others, you know, whether you fought in the war or not, it affected your lives. So as the war years passed, they continued to work in the country and the rest of the family from Hungary joins them. So by 1865, the end of the war, four rich brothers move to Georgia. And here they all seem to go separate ways. William chooses Atlanta and he opens a wholesale business there, a whiskey distillery, and he actually gets some interest in some coal mines. Um, Daniel and Emmanuel settle in Albany, Georgia, and Morris actually says, forget Georgia, and he goes to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he establishes his business there. Now, he wouldn't last there for too long. He was still doing the travel and salesman thing, um, and he would change his mind, and in 1867, he makes his life in Atlanta. In Atlanta, William had already established a store called W.M. Rich & Co. The general business climate in that time in Atlanta's history was one of people coming to the South and seeing a war-torn city, so it's decimated, but also seeing opportunity. So there's a lot of stories of Atlanta from this time where you can see businessmen coming in, seeing that there's an opportunity to create something in this city that's rebuilding. Now, Morris struggles at first. All of the buildings in the city are slapped together. Um, I talked about this in Castleberry Hill, but lots of shanty towns in the sense are one step above a shanty. Proper building materials were scarce, even if you did have the money to invest. He borrows $500 from his brother, William. That's the equivalent of about $9,000 today, so not a small amount. And he opens his own store, and he calls it M. Rich & Co. And it's at 36 Whitehall Street. So if you're following along, that means that the small city of Atlanta has a store named W.M. Rich and now M. Rich. Now, neither of these stores had the honor of being the first store in Atlanta. Um, That goes to Johnson & Thrasher, which opened in 1840, back when the city didn't have a real name. It was actually the first settlement was for a long time called Thrashersville after the merchant who owned it. William and Morris are competing with, at this point, 250 other stores downtown. But the story is that Morris's treatment of his customers is what really sets his store apart from the rest. In the post-war era, cash is hard to come by. And that was especially true for rural farmers. So when you're farming, you only get paid twice a year, pretty much when your crops are harvested. Morris allowed people to pay on credit, but he even allowed people to barter with chickens, eggs, or produce. I personally want a petition to bring this back. Within a few months, Morris hires his first employee, Adolf Tettelbaum, who was the brother-in-law of Daniel Rich. So by year's end, there are three more hires, and net sales by the end of 1867 are $5,000, which was a really good amount of money for the time. As you can imagine, the other family members are sort of looking around and kind of joining in. So brother Emmanuel becomes a clerk in the store in 1871, and then the other brother Daniel would join just a few years later. Business really explodes, and this is a good time to explain Whitehall Street. For those that don't know from previous episodes, again, talked about this last week, but Whitehall Street was so named because it would bring people from this early railroad settlement that we now call Atlanta over to the West End's Whitehall Tavern. Most of Whitehall was renamed to Petrie Street and or Peter Street, but we still actually have a section of it still called Whitehall. As an aside, if you didn't know about the portion of Petrie Street right next to underground Atlanta, You should. This was Whitehall Street, but this is one of the oldest stretches of Atlanta businesses, and as M. Rich would grow and grow, they would do so in this space on the block. 
The newest, richest apartment store opened in 1875 at 35 Whitehall Street. Two whole months later, they would move over to 43 Whitehall. One month later, it's 65 Whitehall, which apparently was um, supposed to be at the corner of what is now MLK and Peachtree. By 1877, Riches becomes one of the, quote, big five retailers in Atlanta, and they open a small section for women's and children's wear, and they actually hire women to man, pun intended, those departments, which was really rare at the time. In 1880, a dressmaking shop was added. Now, ready-to-wear women's wear has its own interesting history. Historically, women made their own clothes and the clothes of their family. So most women of average income had one dress, maybe two, and the draw of making your own clothes is that it fits you perfectly and you picked out your own fabric and trimmings. So walking into a store, buying a dress off the rack is something that we do not think twice about today, but it was really weird for early female shoppers in the U.S. Riches would hire the famous Madame Marie Gillette to head the women's department there and make it the place to buy your dresses. In 1882, the company continues to expand and it opens at 5456 Whitehall Street. So this is the high Victorian style. There's a historical photo of it from the book that I'm going to post and put in the show notes. And it is the first store to have plate glass windows. Just a few years later, a third sibling is added to the partnership. So the name of the business is changed to M. Rich and Brothers. A carpet department is added at this point, headed by J.J. Haverty. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because the Haverty Furniture Company was formed in Atlanta in 1885, and J.J. actually continues to work at Rich's while working on his own business for four whole years. Once he partners with A.G. Rhodes in 1889, they would open their own retail store, which, the reason you know it, is because it still exists today. The Rich family was very much a part of Atlanta's business elite and also shapers of the modern city. So in reading this, I discovered that Emanuel Rich was director of the 1887 and 1895 Piedmont Exposition, which I explained in the Piedmont Park episode. And he even, even though he wasn't president or director, he was involved in the exposition in between as well. And this was the New South movement that Henry Grady so believed in. Really, the riches were, you know, they were not natives per se, but they were here to lead Atlanta into this New South capital. Tragically, on July 16, 1897, Emmanuel Rich was found dead in his bathroom. He had been suffering from what they would call nervous trouble or depression in the recent months, and earlier that evening he had called a doctor to his home for opiates. At some point during the wee hours, he would stab himself 33 times with a fruit knife. His death was a blow to the Rich family and the Rich's organization. Four years later, the partners decided to incorporate And this meant stockholders, reorganization, and new management. Morris would be president, Daniel would be VP and treasurer, and their new name was M. Rich and Brothers Co. This year, 1901, and this formation was pivotal because they then became an official department store. Prior to this, I mean, I'm calling it that, but the richest stores were dry goods store. And again, like I said, meaning they sold everything. This new model of a store with different departments was a really new concept and not one that Americans were wholeheartedly embracing. People were hesitant because they're used to one person waiting on them for everything they bought. So if I come in the store and I'm talking to Susie, 
I want to buy everything I want to buy with Susie's help. But, spoiler alert, the department store model catches on, and riches would continue to expand. In 1907, they open a building that's addressed as 52, 54, 56 Whitehall, all combined. And the most exciting thing is that you can still see this building today. This is currently 82 Peachtree Street, and I think they just call it the Rich Building. The 1920s begin with more sadness for the Rich family as Daniel passes that first year, so now Morris is the sole brother remaining. Other family members fill in roles, so sons and grandsons um, begin to work the company as well. In 1924, their newest store opens at the corner of Alabama and Broad Street. Designed by the firm of Hens, Reed, and Alder, it would be the largest department store south of Philadelphia. That's 180,000 square feet, and it costs $1.5 million to construct. This is the building that most of Atlanta associates with riches and remembers as riches. It's just across the street from the Five Points Marta station, right across from Underground, and its most famous identifying feature is that corner clock. There are many Meet Me Under the Clock moments um, and videos. It even inspired a poem that was written by George's Poet Laureate. The grand opening on March 24th let shoppers explore 75 different departments. There was a free travel agent, interior decorator, and a beauty consultant. The following year, they would add a nursery, free for children six months to six years. Moms, you could drop your kids off and shop. And here I thought that IKEA was the leader in this, but apparently this daycare had a merry-go-round and many Atlanta children from this era have fond memories of riding it. As the 20s came to a close, Walter Rich, the son of Emanuel, was taking daily company operations in hand. A surprising thing that I learned is that he was an avid farmer on his Buckhead estate and he was the creator of the Dogwood Festival. In 1928, Morris Rich passes from a heart attack while on vacation in Atlantic City. His body is brought back and buried in Oakland with the rest of his family. But I try to imagine, you know, you see your small dry goods store grow from a small space in downtown Atlanta to a corporation with revenues of over $7 million. Six months before the stock market crash, which of course nobody realized was about to happen, the company reorganizes and officially becomes Riches. Now this whole time I've been calling it that, but it had always been M. Rich, you know, and Co. and Brother and so on. But now it's officially called Riches. The Depression was difficult for the entire country, um, and there are stories about that in the book. But as an outsider, I can see where brand loyalty forms, and I've had the same thing with Coca-Cola, reading about Coke. As a non-Southerner, I don't really always get the Coca-Cola connection. But when you can see what companies do for cities, so especially with riches in Atlanta in these trying times, you can understand where the connections come from. Many cities did not have cash to government employee salaries, and Atlanta was planning on paying teachers with script. Essentially, it's paper, you know, that they're promising will be backed by real money. So everyone's a little hesitant about this. The executives at Riches band together, and they want to make sure that teachers have cash in hand for the upcoming holidays. So they decide they're going to cash the script at the store for its face value. And this is like one of the small stories. So there are so many instances like this that Riches had with the city and with the community. And you can see how it starts to weave itself into people's lives. In 1941, the tea room inside the store, which had been plainly called just the tea room, was reopened as a magnolia room. 
This became the place for teas and lunches. It was very much modeled after the Gone with the Wind Old South thing, so think African-American waitresses in kind of mammy costumes serving an all-white patronage. And this is a good time to bring up um, that Riches was very much a department store for white Atlantans. Most of the department stores in Atlanta, um, if you were African-American, you were allowed to go inside, but you were not allowed to try things on, usually use the restrooms, or return items. And that's certainly another episode for another day. But uh, a lot of people remember the Magnolia Room, and they associate it with the Civil Rights Movement and with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Atlanta Student Movement will also get its own episode one day. But to give you a quick story, Riches was chosen by the movement to do sit-ins because it was the king of the downtown department stores. And the saying kind of was, once Riches goes, the rest will follow. So the students asked King to walk into the Magnolia Room with them and ask for a seat. And it was here that all of the students and Dr. King would be arrested, which was a first time for him. The group was released, but King was retained by DeKalb County, probation violation, and then he was sent to a chain gang. Now, the ensuing political situation um, influenced the election of um, JFK versus Nixon. But like I said, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, and this could be an episode or maybe a mini-episode in the future. As riches grows in the decades to come, they expand and expand and expand, opening stores all around the state and even out of the state. It would be merged with Federated in 1976 and then combined with Macy's in 2003. Like I said in the beginning, if you're craving details, you will want to read Jeff's book. I am here for the early history, but I don't think it's fair to leave without mentioning the two most famous things associated with the store, and that's a tree and a pig. As a northerner, I definitely thought the great tree as a Macy's thing, and I was shocked to learn where it truly began. The credit does not go to any one person, but in 1948, Riches places a giant tree on top of the Crystal Bridge, which was a newly constructed four-story glass and steel bridge that they just built. Selecting the tree was a very serious ordeal. The hunt would start in September, and for the Christmas season, there were tree scouts that would go around the south looking for that perfect tree. It would shine from the downtown store until 1990, um, eventually moving to underground Atlanta for, I think, a decade, and then the Lenox Square Mall. When Rich's nameplate was dropped to just Macy's, it shifted to being a Macy's tradition, but it still exists today. About a decade after the Great Tree, executives in the toy department explored the idea of a kiddie monorail and whether or not it would be popular enough to justify the cost of insulation. The three cars could hold 24 kids at a time, and they would suspend it from a 400-foot track. In October of 1956, the Snowball Express launched at 9.30 in the morning inside the Rich's flagship store. It was an almost instant success, and it became national news. By the end of the first season, they have $9,000 in sales from a kid's ride in the kid's department. <laughs> so the following year, they renamed it the Sky Ride, and then later, Rich's Giantland Monorail Express. Still, store executives wanted to find a way to make it even more popular. So they sat, and they talked about it, and they brainstormed. And someone was like, eh, you know, I saw this really cute character. It was a pig. And then they chose this pig. So they made the monorail look to look like a pig, and they called it the Pink Pig Flyer. In 1965, they tried to end the ride, 
They sold the equipment somewhere in the Midwest, but public outcry not only bought it, brought it back, but it gave us two pink pig rides. In the 70s, there was a public contest to name each of them, and they were named Priscilla and Percival. The original ride has a permanent home in the Atlanta History Center, so if you rode it at that time, you can go see it. But I'm pretty sure that the pink pig is still a thing at the Lenox Mall Macy's because I have seen the lines every holiday season. So it's a really special thing, I think, for people that used to ride it as a kid to kind of take your kids on it now. So there you have it, the story of Rich's Department Store, its beginning, its growth, and how it's woven itself into the fabric of every native Atlantan's life. If you have your own Rich's stories, I would love to hear them. My email's in the show notes, or you could send me a message on Facebook and Instagram. Remember, the link to Rich's, a Southern institution, is also in the show notes. As I promised last week, I have a little announcement for my patrons. I am going to be producing mini episodes twice a month. There are so many incredible stories that I come across that are just too short for their own episode, and sometimes they don't fit together in another topic. So for the bargain price of $1 a month, you guys will be getting two extra mini episodes. And the topics are going to be so much fun. I don't want to give it too much away, but I'm thinking music festivals, public executions, amateur boxers, just to give you a little sneak peek. If you have not heard of Patreon and you don't know what I'm talking about, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review. It'll help others find it. I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.